Hey folks, it's Brian Cook, your host here, with a couple of words from our sponsor, AdamandEve.com. You can make this Valentine's Day one that you'll both never forget with this amazing offer from AdamandEve.com. Through Valentine's Day, you'll receive 50% off just about any item. Just go to AdamandEve.com and you'll find over 18,000 adult entertainment products, including toys, lingerie, and a seemingly endless selection of adult DVDs. And there's more. With every order, you'll receive our Romance Kit free. Our romance kit includes a toy for him, a special massager for her, and a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus a free adult DVD to put you in the mood. And that's not all. Oh no, we'll also throw in free shipping on your entire order. So check out adamandeve.com today for this special Valentine's offer. Get 50% off one item, a free romance kit, and free shipping when you enter offer code FAN. That's F-A-N, FAN, at adamandeve.com. Now entering Nerdist.com. Hello and welcome to episode 174 of the Competitive Erotic Fan Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Cook, and you found the Internet's number one most trusted source for Muppet boners and horny loners. Upcoming shows include February 19th and March 19th, both at The Virgil 2017. Those are free shows, third Sunday, every month. Today's show was recorded at The Virgil July 2016. This is round one, featuring Adam Lustig, Travis Clark, Jordan Pope, Roush, and Derek Sheen, reading pieces they wrote in advance based upon topics of their choosing. Enjoy. And please welcome your first round one competitor who's brought a prepared, please, <laughs> prepared piece. It's my first time. Travis Clark, ladies and gentlemen. Travis Clark. Hi, guys. How you guys doing? Sweet. Uh, I really enjoyed Chewbacca Milf. That was awesome. That was a lot of fun <laughs> Thanks, for me. Buddy. Um, I came here to shed some truth into the world. Uh, I understand what the, the conceit of the show is, but I also want to let you know I put a lot of research into this, and uh, this is my truth. The time, July 20th, 1969. The place, Area 51. The event, the moon landing hoax. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick stood around a video monitor and rubbed his hands together in an attempt to generate some heat. It was cold that night in Nevada. I'd really like to slip into something warm, he thought. There he was on a top-secret military base, about to live broadcast what many of us consider to be the moon landing. <laughs> it was... Uh, an elaborate set with a full-size reproduction of the Lunar Lander and several giant studio lights that would later go on to be a topic of much discussion due to the scattered shadows they'd create. But Stanley wasn't thinking about the shadows at that time. I mean, clearly, what the fuck, Kubrick? Multiple light sources in space? That's not how it fucking works. <laughs> no, Stanley was nervous. This was going to be the biggest and most secretive and expensive film shoot of all time. Stanley considered jerking off because he thought that would relax him. Plus, many of his films prove he's not above doing things in a masturbatory fashion. <laughs> but before he could whip out his wide-angled lens of a dick, Karen, a pretty young production assistant, came over to the legendary filmmaker. I think they're ready for you to start shooting, she said in a sultry voice. Stanley turned and noticed that Karen was packing a heavy payload of tits into her tight top. <laughs> He stared at them in a way that was reminiscent of the famed director's long tracking shots. He followed their every move. <laughs> and he saw that they seemed to bounce and float almost effortlessly. Oh my God, your tits, your beautiful, beautiful tits, he exclaimed. 
Karen blushed and playfully tossed her hair. Oh, Mr. Kubrick, thank you for noticing, she said with a smile, because it was the 60s and that seemed like a compliment back then. (laughs) That's how it should look when they walk on the moon, he declared. The astronaut should bounce like your boobs. A deep, booming voice cut through the dark night. Did someone say, astronaut? The voice belonged to the handsome, yet somehow still goofy-looking Neil Armstrong. (laughs) Stanley and Karen turned and saw Neil standing behind him. He was dressed head to toe in his now iconic spacesuit. The metallic suit sparkled, but it was clear that Neil's silver space pants were straining to contain his Saturn V rocket of a cock. (laughs) Oh, Mr. Armstrong, you look so heroic in that spacesuit, Karen said. I look even more heroic out of it, Neil retorted as he began to undress. I bet you do. My pants are a sea of tranquility right now, just thinking about that space dick. Karen said as she pulled off her tops, her heaping and impressive bosom spilled out. I know I'm supposed to be acting like I'm looking for moon rocks, but I'd rather sample those shoulder boulders, Neil said, as he started to grab for Karen's mega memories. Neil literally had his hands full and stopped undressing. He was nude except for the space helmet, which he had mistakenly left on. Let's get that metal helmet off of you and get that purple helmet into me. I want to get astro naughty, Karen said. (laughs) Stanley couldn't believe what he was witnessing. Usually he puts so much thought and pre-production into his projects, but this was going to be his opus and it was literally unfolding right in front of him. And by that I mean Karen had just spread her legs and willfully accepted Neil's payload with all the proper docking procedure. Oh, God, I don't know how to shoot this. Wide, close, slow push in? Stanley was in a panic. Why don't you let me worry about the shooting and you just enjoy the show, Hollywood, Neil said, as he expertly executed some fuck maneuvers. This is one small fuck for man, one giant fuck for mankind, Karen said, as she let out a giant cry of ecstasy. I think that's my line, Neil said. Why don't we find a better use for your mouth? Due to his training as a test pilot, Neil was an expert in roll, pitch, and yaw. He managed to quickly shift Karen into the 69 position almost effortlessly. In fact, in certain secret circles, this move is known as the Armstrong Maneuver, or landing the eagle. Neil was planting his flagpole into Karen's mouth while Neil was helping himself to a generous portion of Karen's tang. I'm just going to let that one seek in for a second because I was really proud of that. Um, they, were six to nine, they were 69ing in 1969, and it was glorious. That is until they heard, Houston, we have a problem. Those words were uttered 20 minutes into the faux lunar fuck fest, and it stopped all sucking and fucking. Neil didn't need to turn around to know what was happening. Now, it's widely reported that Edwin Eugene Aldrin was called Buzz because of the nickname he got from one of his sisters as a child. This is not true. <laughs> He was called Buzz for two reasons. One, when it came to astro orgies, he was always a buzzkill. And two, Mr. Aldrin liked to shave off his pubes. Neil turned to see Buzz standing completely naked except for the space helmet with the visor down. So even though he could not see Buzz's face, he recognized that shaved turkey neck of a dick. Houston, we have a problem, Buzz repeated. God damn it, Buzz, what's the problem? This Apollo 11-inch dick isn't going to suck itself, he said. No one could see Buzz's face, but it was pretty clear he was smiling like a fucking retard. Karen popped Neil's shaft out of her throat just so she could say, 
I've got room for another manned mission inside me. I wasn't looking to explore your system, honey. I want to boldly go where no man has gone before. Neil, ever the test pilot, ever willing to push his limits, just shrugged and said, why the fuck not? Buzz dripped a fair amount of pre-cum from his knobby but impressive cock. I'm going to stick this in your NASA, he (laughs) exclaimed. With so much fucking around him, Stanley Kubrick couldn't contain his sexual appetites any longer. I... I have to get in on this. I must partake in the love that dares not speak its name. I must fuck my one true love. And with that, he literally grabbed a film camera, knocked out the lens, and started fucking it, accidentally inventing the precursor to the fleshlight. (laughs) The weird three-way between Karen, Buzz, and Neil saw this, and even they thought, that's kind of weird. But the weirdness had only just begun. Three figures emerged from the nearby building. This is where it gets a little weird, and I had to do a lot of research to find this. And you can't find a lot of this, so please, trust me, this is all true. Three figures emerged from a nearby building on the Area 51 base. At first, no one could see who they were, but then a familiar voice said, I want to get in on this fucking, not because it is easy, but because I am hard. (laughs) Yes, it was President John F. Kennedy, who was not dead, but was hiding and running a secret government from within the confines of Area 51. At his side was his mistress, Marilyn Monroe, also not dead. I'd tell you what she said, but then it would just turn into a shitty meme we'd all have to see reposted several times a day. But the third figure was the biggest surprise. It was a gray alien, the sole survivor of the Roswell crash. The creature was neither male nor female, but rather a bit of both, along with some other types of genitals we humans just really haven't thought of yet. Its name was Jizklastoglark, which has no direct meaning in any Earth language, but loosely translates to that crazy motherfucker who's going to make you come for days. Jizz Krakalark took over the minds of not only everyone at Area 51, but everyone on the entire planet. It telepathically sent out this message to every living creature on Earth. Shit's about to get freaky. At that point, Jizz Krakalark brought the entire population of Earth, and I mean every living creature on it, into a 30-day, 30-night long orgasm. Or orgasm, it is commonly referred to. There was so much cum and pussy juice that the whole planet became a post-coital wet spot. The entire surface of the planet was knee-deep in cum. Eventually, all the sex fluids dumped into the ocean. Previously, the water was fresh and not salty, but Gizklakalark rewrote our minds into believing that the ocean has always been salty. It's only been salty since the August of 1969. The ocean is made of cum. But that's not the most alarming thing of what Gizklakalark did. You see, there were cameras all set up to live broadcast the staged moon landing. And every, <laughs> everything described in this story was broadcast and is all on the footage you have seen. But just clock ability to manipulate our thoughts, we all see that as the moon landing. <laughs> and when we see the footage where it says, this is one small step for man, that clip is literally the feed from Stanley Kubrick's fuck camera that he put his dick into. And when he says, and one giant leap for mankind, that's the moment Stanley Kubrick came. <laughs> we've never been to the moon, but we've done some freaky shit in the desert, and our oceans are made of cum. <laughs> the truth is out there. Travis Clark. I think he believes all that. Keep it going for your second round one competitor, Jordan Pobrausch. Okay, I chose 500 Days of Summer. <clears throat> Day one. 
This is a story of Boy Meets Girl. The boy, Tom Hansen, played by Joseph Grundle Lickett, grew up thinking that he would never be truly happy until he met the one. This belief was based on early exposure to German Scheiser porn and his, addic his addiction to masturbating to it, only after huffing air freshener through a washcloth. The girl, Summer Finn, played by Zoe, a dick from hell, of Shittencock, Michigan, did not share this belief. <laughs> Since the disintegration of her parents' marriage, she had only loved two things. The first was her absolutely gorgeous vagina. The second was how it looked after being nearly torn to shreds by double penetration. And afterwards, how she felt nothing. <laughs> this is a story of boy meets girl, but you should know up front, this is not a love story. This is a fuck story. Day 290. Oh, yeah, well, how'd that happen? Well, they switched time around. That's kind of the game. Oh, you're shaking. Well, I told you. I'm an alcoholic. Tom rides his bike over to the apartment where his two best friends live with his sister. The sister is played by Chloe Grace Moretz, but at her current age of 19, I looked it up, so not the child that you remember from the film. So every, it'll be okay. The two best friends are played by Jewish fellows, I assume. Anyway, Tom swings the door open to find his two best friends sitting on the couch covered by a blanket with what appears to be a bucking donkey in between them, and everyone's groaning. Tom blurts out, Summer dumped me! And then promptly slips and falls like a dumbass. I think your sink's leaking, he says. No, that's your sister's squirt puddle from earlier, replies his friend. You guys are goofy, Tom says back. And then he sits down to bitch about Summer. About halfway through, his cum-drenched sister peeks her head out. She was too enamored with fucking to notice that her pussy brother was even there. I think my booty's bleeding, she says with a laugh. Oh, hey, Tom. <laughs> What were you doing under there? Taking a nap, says Tom, because he's an ineffectual twat. <laughs> Everyone shares a look, and then his friend says, You realize we fuck your sister, like, all day long, right? <laughs> Tom stares for a moment and then laughs. Are you guys on pot? As everyone rolls their eyes, cut to day one again for some fucking reason. It's such a trick to switch time around. It's such a fucking trick. And Tom's at work again, where he writes greeting cards for people whose family members died during sex. He's working on one that says, Sorry your grandpa died while fucking a hooker in reverse cowgirl position when Summer walks by. She's the new girl. Get it? Because of the fucking show? She drops her pen and bends over to pick it up, revealing she's not wearing any underwear. Her vagina looks like if you cut one slice out of a grapefruit and left it on a table for 14 hours, just long enough for the edges to wilt around the center, but short enough a time for it to remain visibly juicy. <laughs> Everyone's dick nearby gets at least one quarter hard, except Tom, because he's in love. <laughs> Talk about a glass ceiling, the cube, his cubicle mate says, snapping Tom out of it. What's that, says Tom? I said, talk about a glass ceiling. I can see her pussy, and there's that thing about uh, work and women and, and the glass ceiling and shit, and I, I don't know, man. Anyway, Tom explains that he's in love with that girl, and he shouldn't talk about her like that, even though they've never spoken. He says it in a quasi-New York accent, because jo Joseph Grundle Lickett is an absolutely atrocious actor <laughs> who changes the way he talks throughout every movie he's in. <laughs> Fucking check for yourself. It's weird. <laughs> later that afternoon, later, later that afternoon, he gets into an elevator and Summer's there. He has on headphones and she asks what he's listening to. He says, 
the Smiths, and Summer says she loves them too. My favorite is Jada Pinkus, Pinkett Smith. <laughs> she said, <laughs> that's how she talks. <laughs> what are you up to this weekend? <laughs> Not much, says Tom. Just drawing buildings and watching men defecate into women's mouths online. I've got a free trial running out soon, and I want to get the most out of it. What about you? I'm going to ride my sippy until I come so hard I pass out, says Summer. And she gets off the elevator. Sibian, Tom says to himself, probably saying, she's cool. Day 27. Tom shows up to a karaoke bar where Summer's singing, sucking on my titties like you're wanting me, calling me all the time. Now check out my crazy eyes all of the time. What else is in the teachers of peaches? Uh, later that night outside the bar. <laughs> Tom is trying to mack on Summer when his drunk friend yells out, Tom and Summer in a tree. B-U-T-T-F-U-C-K-I-N-G. In a tree, Tom says? That's silly, we'd fall out. He turns to kiss Summer, but she's already blowing a cab driver as the cab pulls away. He's a 58-year-old uncircumcised Greek man who's a bit lazy with showering sometimes, so there's a fair amount of schmegma, but Summer doesn't mind. The next day, Tom walks into a copy room to find Summer making copies of her vagina. Well, these are good drawings, Tom says. Yeah, in high school, they called me Georgia O'Queef. <laughs> then she kisses Tom, and he loses his mind. <laughs> like any straight man to celebrate being kissed by a girl, he walks to the park. <laughs> and watches a cartoon animal orgy. Did you know that male blue jays fly 30 miles per hour to stab their blue jay penis into the female in midair? I made that up. <laughs> There's a cuckold situation with some male sheep jerking off by a tree while his wife gets fucked by two black bears. <laughs> anyway, over the next few months they fall in love. There are clues that Summer's cheating on him, like when they play the penis game in the park and she sucks every single guy's penis in front of him. But he's too smitten to notice. Then on day 260, they go to a bar together, and Tom comes back from the bathroom, and he finds Summer licking the bartender's asshole while a line cook fucks her from behind. Tom says, I thought we were in love. To which Summer replies, I thought you were gay. <laughs> Back to day 290 at his friend's apartment, his sister, remember, she's 19 in the story, is walking around naked with an ice pack duct taped to her ass. Her vagina looks like a pale forearm with stitches that have healed perfectly. <laughs> well, aren't you... Oh, no, that's Zoe's voice. Well, aren't you gay? She says. Well, aren't you gay? She says. Does this answer your question? Tom replies. And then he tap dances. Because I think that's what Joseph Gordon-Levitt would do if you asked him if he was gay. God, I hate him. She explains to Tom when everyone else already knew that Summer's been fucking every dude in town. Cut to a couple of months later when Tom sees Summer out randomly and she invites him to a party that night. He's excited until he realizes that Summer's engaged. I thought you didn't believe in love, he says. He's rich, Summer replies. <laughs> and then we fade to black. But then, 
something breaks the blackness. It's the opening of a door. We're in a dungeon? Yeah. We're in a dungeon. A sex dungeon. Where Summer is completely naked, chained to a wall, but for a ball gag. Tom is the one who opened the door. And he just stares at her and he says, the safe word is death cab for cutie. <laughs> Thank you. Judd Pope Roush. Made as much sense as that movie. Keep it going for Mr. Derek Sheen, ladies and gentlemen. At this point, it's not funny anymore. No, I, <laughs> Barry already did that. Oh, I already I, didn't, I missed that. I was in the bathroom. Pratfalls have been done. Have man. that removed. Uh, by the way, that is <laughs> the only way I can walk is to trip over things. I am made of tripping. Uh, so, uh, Brian and I have uh, been friends for a while. We took a tour last year. Uh, we went uh, through the Midwest, and uh, we got, almost got stuck in Wyoming. So, this is a erotic fictional account of our trip through Wyoming. <laughs> As a lot of you know, if you know Brian, he is incredibly mean to me, and that is, uh, so here, here we go. <laughs> God, you were one dumb faggot, Brian said, looking out the passenger side window as the snow-covered Wyoming countryside slowly crawled beside us. I immediately felt the familiar warming flush that secretly came every time he said something hurtful. <laughs> It would start in my face and slowly make its way south like a sip of barrel-aged scotch. I quietly whispered, thank you. What the fuck did you just say, idiot? He spat back. Oh, I said, yeah, sure thing, dude, trying to hide my smile, but then I couldn't help myself. I put on an episode of Welcome to Night Vale. 20 seconds in, Brian grabbed the wheel and tried to run us into oncoming traffic while calling me the N-word. I felt a dollop of pre-cum dampen the inside of my jeans. I'll never forget that first day of the tour when I pulled into his driveway, texted, hey, I'm here, and he immediately texted back, kill yourself. I felt every pleasure center of my brain light up like a pinball machine at Dave & Buster's. I tried thinking of guitar comics to quell the rage of blood flooding my ever-hardening prick. The first thing he said when he got in the car was, nice Fiat, does your dad know he had a daughter? I started the car and yelled, road trip, and he punched me in the neck so hard I almost passed out. I had never been so turned on in my life. I instantly knew that Brian Cook was my soulmate. The first few shows went great. Brian would do 30 solid minutes of blazing, socially relevant material, and then end his set with, well, that's the end of the show, idiots, choke on a dick. Then as people were leaving, I would go up to a nearly empty room and do my set. He was such a joker. One night he even introduced me as a blathering retard that you're guaranteed to hate. Then he unplugged the mic from the cable and took it with him. I had to do most of my sets sitting on a stool because my erection wouldn't go away. Brian knew how to cut through the red tape and get right to the center of my heart. I hadn't felt a love this genuine since my dad tied me to a bed and tried to set the house on fire. He was the funny one in the family. I think that's where I got my sense of humor. We were leaving Wyoming, having previously performed in a bowling alley where Brian's introduction, including informing the audience I was a level four sex offender and a white supremacist who married my daughter's baby. <laughs> Oddly, no one left, and it was the first standing ovation I've ever received. Brian was so mad, he ran me over with my own car, and I secretly discovered I was a squirter. 
An hour into our trip, the snow started. A light flurry at first, then quickly transformed into a raging blizzard, making the road impossible to see. I had a death grip on that steering wheel as I struggled to see the road. Brian had put on Van Halen's Diver Down album, turned the stereo all the way up and remarked, if I'm gonna die, it's not gonna be to rush, you gay elderly dinosaur. Then he produced a book of matches and began flicking them at my face. I've never driven through a snowstorm while having multiple orgasms before. And I'm still surprised they didn't kill us both from cut laughing and coming so hard. Eventually, the storm subsided and we took the first eggs that we could find, low on gas and exhausted from all the coming. I suggested we take a break and get a motel. Brian called me a cunt, which meant he agreed. <laughs> we pulled into the icy driveway of the Super 8 motel and checked in. We unlocked the door to the room and Brian said, the fuck, pointed to the single bed. Oh, um, do you want me to go to the office and see if they have a double, I said? Hopeful that he'd be so tired that he'd just give in. Nah, this'll work. Let's share the bread like we're married. I instantly looked deep into his eyes, flushed with heat, and about to tell him I loved him before he brought his suitcase up under my chin with so much force that I swallowed my number 14 molar and instantly jizzed into my pants. Of course I want you to get us a double, you illiterate dildo. I walked back to the office, the middle of my pants now a solid block of ice cum. The night manager informed me that we got the last room, and when I told Brian we'd be sharing the bed, he said, tell you what, first guy to get a stomach ache sleeps on the floor. Then he sucker punched me so hard I coughed out my solar plexus, which landed on the carpet with a dull, wet slap. Then he fell back on the bed, put his arms behind his head, and closed his eyes. I grabbed a towel and cleaned up the spot where my solar plexus landed and lay down on the carpet. I found it hard to sleep because I was so happy that my best friend was right next to me in the same room. He looked so peaceful, so beautiful. I watched him for a moment, and then one of his eyes popped open. The fuck are you looking at, he said. I nervously replied, nothing, Dad. I mean, sir, um, I mean, I was just making sure you were breathing. Did you accidentally just call me Dad? I, I meant that, then he started copying me in a baby voice. <laughs> I, I meant, I meant, I used your words, and then the baby, and then, and then I, I was, for the first time, I wasn't turned on, I was angry. I hated that baby voice so much. I could feel the rage building in my throat and I exploded. Brian, damn it, that's enough of that fucking baby voice. That's how I yelled. You know what? I've had about enough of your condescending bullshit. I drove us through that fucking snowstorm while you set my hair on fire twice and I let you play the entire David Lee Roth era Van Halen catalog and Taylor Swift's country albums and I never said a fucking word. You took to bed, made me sleep on the floor and all of that was fine, but that fucking baby voice, god damn it. Then I noticed that Brian's eyes had rolled back in his head and his mouth was agape and his soft moan. Oh God, Brian, are you okay? I grabbed him and he moaned, don't stop, keep yelling, you fucking dolt. I complied and I yelled at him some more. I yelled at him for having tiny hands, for drunk texting me racist tweets, for liking ska music. I looked down at the bulge in his pants, which was threatening to burst through his zipper and then his eyes met mine. Well, dipshit, this dick ain't gonna fuck itself. And he pushed me back onto the bed as he loosened his belt and let his jeans fall around his ankles. Of course, he left on his slobberbone t-shirt and it clung to his sweaty chest as he climbed on top of me. As the first knuckle of his ring finger entered me, he whispered in my ear, Loggers use bottom fermenting yeast in a typically ferment in a 50 degree range. The name comes from the German term lagering or to keep. Aside from the standard lagers, Pilsner, Oktoberfest, and Bach are another common and popular form of lager. Served cold. Lagers are the kind of crisp beers that hit the spot after a hard day working in the hot sun. 
I hate IPAs, I, I whispered back and felt him harden even more. Oh, IPAs are a crucial participant in the hop craze, he said, as he finally entered me. An English creation, the name comes from this variety's 18th century export to India. English IPAs generally have less bitterness and more, more malt and hop flavor, whereas uh, American IPAs uh, uh, <laughs> typically have a pronounced hop bitterness and also strive to showcase the unique flavors of a particular hopper combination of hops. His strokes were becoming increasingly fevered and suddenly he started rampling naming ska bands. The specials, the Aquabats, the Monty Monty Boss Tones, the Crazy Eights, Bucko Nine. Then he grabbed my shoulders and yelled in my ear, Afghan Wigs! And he came so hard that one of his pupils changed color for an entire week. His breathing was heavy and hung over me, his beard sloppy and dripping with moisture having been in my mouth for most of the action. He rolled over next to me and told me I was the dumbest person he'd ever met, then I, then I came immediately. He slapped my face one more time and fell asleep. I watched him drift off and thought, you know, it doesn't matter if he doesn't love me tomorrow. We had tonight and frankly, I was just glad he paid attention to me at all. <laughs> then at that thought, I came a second time. Good night, Dad, I whispered. And without waking, he crammed his entire fist in my mouth. The end, thank you very much. Derek Sheen. All scotch is barrel-aged, you fucking coward. Give it up for your final round one competitor, Mr. Adam Lustig, ladies and gentlemen. Adam Lustig. Negotiated those skips like a fucking champ. Shipped it. Oh, my God. Uh, give it up one more time for Brian, your amazing hostile host. Uh, okay. Uh, this story is called Old Times. As the last speaker of the daytime TV industry's biannual summer Brunksfest, a fruit-based snack between breakfast and brunch, Rachel Ray delivered an impassioned plea to make available not only alcohol, but heroin and MDMA to all union daytime TV sets. And not just for the hosts, but for, and I quote, the disgusting crew as well. As the audience roared in approval and then stampeded towards the open bar, serving heroin, MDMA, and Amstel Light, the ineffable and totally effable Kelly Ripper found herself alone, sporting her couture backless, sleeveless, boneless, Vebasachi gown, <laughs> accessorized with 4,400 carat diamond bracelets on her wrists, and a 12-ounce chocolate Malamar necklace plunging down her skeletal delicatage. She gazed up at the vacant stage and felt a sudden undefined yearning course through her little baby body, and defenses down and fairly hopped up on heroin, loudly blurted, sudden undefined yearning, only to hear it echo off the walls of the Grand Rapids Hyatt Conference Room B. The acoustics made her thin, grating voice sound robust. The acoustics make your thin, grating voice sound robust. <laughs> she heard a husky voice say from behind her. She turned around and found herself face-to-face -face with ex-co-host Michael Strahan's tooth gap and surrounding it, Michael Strahan. <laughs> I said your usually annoying voice sounds actually almost okay in here. He reiterated as he leaned his enormous frame draped in the very same Vabasachi gown in the direction of his colleague-turned-rival. They now stood close enough that Kelly even caught the old familiar aroma of his cherry-flavored steroid gummies wafting through his enormous tooth gap. I heard you, she said, in an inexplicable Irish brogue. 
She loathes him, of course. Loathes him for being offered Good Morning America instead of her. Loathes him for taking it. Loathes him for his male privilege. Loathes him for his probably early-onset football-induced brain damage. <laughs> loathes him for stealing the thunder of the other New York giant turned wannabe media darling, Tiki Barber. Loathes the sweet cherry berry smell of his fancy Nancy steroid gummies. Her body quivered with loathing, and as said quiver reached an irresistible crescendo, she glanced around to make sure no one else was there and began to swiftly undo the clasp of her Versace gown. Wait. Together, he said, with purpose in his tone and roids on his breath. He loathed her too, of course. Loathed her adorable button nose. Loathed her for the eight consecutive years hosting the Disney Parks Christmas Day Parade. A gig he coveted and knew for a fact he would nail. <laughs> loathed her for her small role in the 1996 film Marvin's Room, a highbrow credit about which he could only dream. <laughs> loathed her for being a petite, blonde, bubbly white lady, widely understood to be the most loathsome brand of bubbly white lady. However, ever since his decision to leave her in the dust for the brighter pastures of Good Morning America, not seeing each other every day had allowed their loathing to morph into something resembling unbridled lust. Together, he said. And they disrobed in perfect unison, allowing their identical gowns to cascade to the chartreuse carpet of conference room B. Michael inhaled all five feet of her. She smelled of slightly off-green juice and La Mer night cream. As he approached her, he saw the sinews of her leg muscles twitch beneath the thin layer of her nearly translucent skin, only blemished by the small bruises on her inner knees from her compulsive thigh mastering. <laughs> he understood this element of her. They were on two separate but parallel journeys toward physical perfection. His contempt couldn't mask his appreciation of her meticulously cared for form. She looked like a bundle of sticks, covered <laughs> covered by an opaque white condom, and Lord, she was beautiful. Her breasts were small, punctuated by rock-hard nipples protruding at least a full inch from her chest. Her hairless pussy-wussy seemed to shine as her juices seeped from her womanhood. Her body was betraying her. She wanted him so goddamn badly. His supple pecs and defined stomach drew her eyes down to his hard-as-nails dick. He was fully erect, and his four inches of steel were pointing directly at her as, it, as if accusing her of the deadly sin of lust. Well, she was guilty as charged, and she knew it. His teeny-weeny balls and back knee be damned. She had to have him. Had to have him now. They slowly approached each other, eyes locked, arms outstretched, genitals engorged. But just as they were about to finally touch, the door of conference room B burst open, and pantsless Regis Philbin ran in between them. <laughs> Kelly and Michael, with stunned paralysis, gazed at Regis's two huge dicks, side by side, as if their bifurcated road to perfection both originated at the same root. Each dick was at least 10 inches long, with a five-inch circumference. His tiny, well-manicured hands started jerking them both off at the same time. <laughs> this is your final answer. I'm gonna make you both millionaires of my sperm. Start sucking. <laughs> Michael sank to his knees at the order and took one of Regis's turgid members between his tooth gap and started sucking as he'd never sucked before. You too, Kel, now. Kelly was too short to get on her knees and still have a dick in her mouth, so she got behind Michael, bent at the waist, putting a long nipple over each shoulder and started slurping down Regis's remaining dick. 
<laughs> Regis unbuttoned his suit jacket, threw his tie over his shoulder as he moaned with pleasure. Get ready for sweeps, weak twerps. He took a step back. Each dick made a satisfying pop as they left Michael and Kelly's respective mouths. Regis started to make a primal, guttural noise as ropey explosions of cum left his body and splattered all over live with Kelly and Michael. One after the other, both dicks shot cum everywhere as Regis exclaimed, Bam! Pow! Blammo! This went on for what seemed like the cumulative sum of their careers. Spent and soaked, Kelly and Michael looked at each other for what felt like the first time in a year. A smile spread over both their cum-covered faces. <laughs> Kelly whispered, just like old times. <laughs> Michael replied, just like old times. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Adam Lustig. Adam, stay right here. Lead all the round one competitors back to the stage. Let him hear it all the way to the stage for your round one competitors. Clap your hands for these fine people. We're miss. Really, that's three. That's three. Oh, it's just... It's just not funny anymore. Are we missing somebody? Who are we missing? Who are we missing? Jordan, Jordan, where are you at? Jordan Barbrouch. Jordan, Jordan, Jordan Barbrouch. Fuck that guy. All right. Uh, so I'm going to remind you of what everybody... Could you guys move further back? Is that an option? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm going to remind you of what everybody read, and then you'll be voting on a winner. We started with Travis Clark with the Moon Landing Hoax, then Jordan Pope Roush with 500 Days of Summer, Derek Sheen with me, and Adam Lustig with uh, Kelly Ripa. So pick a favorite with your applause, starting with Travis Clark, the Moon Landing Hoax. <laughs> Jordan Pope Roush, 500 Days of Summer. Derek Sheen with me. And, and Adam Lustick with Kelly Ripa. Oh, should we do it again? No, get the fuck back there. <laughs> I can smell the cigarettes on his breath. Uh, what really kills me is that Derek won with that. That's the, the biggest... <laughs> You want to you just stay up here for the rest of the show? It's fine. That does it for round one. To hear round two, you can check out episode 175. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. For details on upcoming shows, you can follow me on Twitter at Brian Cooking or follow the show at CE Fanfic. See you next time. Now leaving Nerdist.com.